This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. This is a science podcast for August 25th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, science editor Keith Smith and researcher Lakshmi Pradeep Chita talk about a paper on the formation of solar wind using data from the Solar Orbiter mission. Next, two stories on unlikely reasons for halting research. First, we have Diverse Voices interns Tanvi Gupta and Selena Chow. They're going to talk about how cyber attacks on a telescope center are scrambling ground-based astronomy in Hawaii and Chile. Also, a story on how an unparalleled water crisis in Uruguay has left scientists high and dry and a little salty. That's with science journalist Maria Orfila. Finally, in this month's installment of our book series on science, sex, and gender, host Angela Saini talks with author Paisley Kara about his book, Sex Is As Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity. This week in science, we have a paper on the formation of solar wind. Solar wind is a stream of plasma. It's kind of constantly accelerating away from the sun. It envelops and surrounds the solar system in a bubble called the heliosphere. We know it comes from the sun, and we know it has something to do with these things called coronal holes, but we don't understand the process of its formation. Before we get into the results or the details of this paper, I actually talked to the editor from Science, Keith Smith, that handled the paper about where the data came from. It's a mission called the Solar Orbiter. It's a spacecraft circling the sun, and I wanted to ask Keith about some of the big questions that this mission might help us answer. So now we have Keith, and we're going to talk about some mysteries of the sun. So what are some of the big questions about the sun that we're hoping Solar Orbiter is going to answer for us? Well, Solar Orbiter is designed to investigate several different aspects of the sun, including things called the uh, coronal heating problem. This is the strange situation where the sort of outer atmosphere of the sun, so it's corona, is actually many times hotter than the surface, which doesn't make an awful lot of sense and indicates that there must be some heating mechanism that's going on in that region. And we don't really know what it is. There there are various proposals. But one of the things that Solar Orbiter is doing is looking at the different ways that energy may be transferred and and deposited in the corona to, to cause that heating. Another thing that it's looking at is the solar wind. This is a constant stream of plasma that comes off of the sun. It gets stronger when there are big solar flares, but it never really goes away even when the sun is quiet. And something must be accelerating that plasma away from the sun and across the solar system to where it actually impacts Earth's atmosphere and causes aurora and things like that. They're also looking at the poles of the sun. So most of the observations that we have over hundreds of years have been taken from the Earth, and the Earth orbits near the equator of the Sun. So we're always seeing it from an angle near the equator. You don't actually get a very good view of the poles. So Solar Orbiter is actually on an orbit that goes up out of the plane of the solar system so that it can have a better view of the North Pole and the South Pole of the Sun and see what's going on there and how that affects the, the rest of solar activity, for example. Okay, that's all from Keith for now. We're going to return at the very end of the segment, so stay tuned after our researcher interview concludes. And Keith's going to tell us what is going to happen to the Solar Orbiter mission once it's done with data taking and it needs to be retired. Just a hint, it's not going to get thrown into the sun. 
but that's kind of what I thought was going to happen. So stay tuned for that. Now we're going to hear from Lakshmi Pradeep Chita. He and his colleagues wrote about how solar wind is created. Hi, Pradeep. Welcome to the Science Podcast. Hi, Sarah. It's great to be here. I mentioned at the beginning that, you know, the solar wind fills the heliosphere. You know, it's kind of this bubble around us. But what exactly does the solar wind, how does it interact with Earth? Like, how does it affect us? How does it evidence in like what we experience? We are very lucky in that Earth is covered by protective shield of magnetic field of Earth. And uh, because of that, the solar wind that is being interacting with Earth gets deflected to the poles. And that's where we get to see these uh, very beautiful array, these colorful lights, northern and southern lights. Sometimes the wind can be strong. It can actually cause geomagnetic storms and uh, you get to see these disturbances much to the lower latitudes also. So in some sense, we are sort of protected by Earth's magnetic field. It doesn't mean that we are not affected by solar wind. For example, if we have space assets that are beyond this Earth's magnetic shield, then we need to know exactly the conditions of the, uh, the space around the satellite so that we can have an advanced warning and then we can turn off these uh, satellites or you know give advanced warning to our astronauts not to uh, delve into certain areas at certain times. In that sense, we are lucky, but... Again, if you want to be explorative uh, outward, then we also have to be mindful of how the sun and then the space weather change because of the solar wind. Most of us are probably familiar with the aurora borealis. Maybe some of us even know about solar wind. But coronal holes, I think, are a little bit more technical. So let's start with the anatomy of the sun. First, the corona, the sun's corona. It's kind of like its atmosphere. It's the outermost part, and it's also the hottest part. We can't see it with our eyes but we can somehow see these holes in it. So pretty. what do they look like and, and how are we observing coronal holes? We do see the solar corona in very rare occasions when the moon blocks the sun and then we get to see this spectacular corona. Now, what we see with the naked eye is the white light corona, but uh, there is more to it because it's hotter. It can also emit in extreme ultraviolet and X-rays. So if we can send a probe to the outer space, away from the Earth's atmosphere, where most of the UV radiation is blocked. So we can start seeing the extreme ultraviolet radiation emitted from the outer layers of the atmosphere of the sun. Now, this atmosphere is quite hot. Now, if you look at the sun with the naked eye, the photosphere that appears as a fireball is at about 6,000 Kelvin. Now, the corona is at about a million Kelvin. And it can get to tens of millions of Kelvin when there are flares and coronal mass ejections. The interesting thing is that all this corona is governed by magnetic fields. Most of the corona is governed by closed magnetic fields and that forms these loops or coronal loops, but at locations where the magnetic field actually stretches into the outer space, into the interplanetary space, the gas is free to escape there. So we get to see that there is no plasma emission that is as strong as the background or ambient emission. And that's where we see a relative darkness. And that's what we call a coronal hole. The whole sun is kind of covered with these loops of magnetic fields, but every once in a while, they're not connected. They're like streaming out into space. And if you look at the corona there, you're going to see a dark spot. A dark spot in the, in the UV means less UV, right? Yes, dark spot in the UV means less UV. But then there are also dark spots created by the magnetic field, very strong magnetic field that we call sunspots. And they also appear dark but they appear dark in the photosphere and the UV for a different uh, reason, that uh, they suppress the plasma motions of the photosphere. You do not get to see much of radiation. But the coronal hole is distinct in that there is a very weaker magnetic field compared to these uh, darker sunspots, but then the magnetic field is open to the interplanetary space. And that is where you get to see that the plasma is not being trapped by the closed magnetic fields. And that's why it appears darker related to, to the ambient quite sun corona. The plasma is not trapped and it's free to kind of stream out exactly. from the sun. And that's what you saw here with these observations that you're talking about in your science paper. Yes. So we know the basic functioning of the coronal hole that, that the plasma escapes very freely and that forms the solar wind. What we uh, do not know is the exact foot points of the solar wind as they emerge through the coronal hole. For this, we need also some sort of special observations at a very high spatial resolution and high temporal cadences because we think that most of the processes that generate these solar wind streams 
are operating at on spatial scales of 1,000 kilometers or less. So what made the Solar Orbiter mission you know, better positioned or better suited to figuring out what exactly is happening in these coronal holes with the solar wind? Solar Orbiter can travel in this highly elliptic orbit around the sun, and then the perihelion point of the Solar Orbiter is as close as 0.3 AU. And at these distances, Solar Orbiter, with its remote sensing observatories, can resolve the solar photosphere and corona at 200 kilometers resolution. And with this, we were able to see a much better fine structure of the foot points of the solar wind. And then one would say we could see how the solar wind takes birth in the coronal holes. What type of cadence were you seeing there? How often was it taking snapshots of what's going on in the coronal hole? The particular observations that we used were recorded at three-second cadence. I just want to let everybody know that there is video of this. There are beautiful images of this, and you should definitely check those out. They are with the paper. And, and it is just amazing to see this level of detail of the sun's corona. What were you able to observe about the coronal hole that hadn't been seen before? What did you see there? We observed that the coronal hole is repleted with small-scale activity, and the small-scale activity manifests itself as tiny jets. They live for about a minute or so and then fade away very quickly to the background and then we cannot uh, follow them forward. And they also propel outward from the sun along the open magnetic fields of the coronal holes at about 100 kilometers per second. So though these are very tiny jets, they are so numerous that we suggest that they could actually power the solar wind emerging from that coronal hole and if they are ubiquitous enough in other coronal holes also, they can actually power the solar wind mass flux throughout the solar cycle. Mm -hmm. So the math could work out that this is all you need to supply or inflate the, the heliosphere. Yes, that is correct. So you're looking at the South Pole in this observation, in this study. You know, are you looking for further measurements from the orbiter to look at other holes, look at other parts of the sun? We are definitely interested in looking at the subcoronal layers, meaning the photosphere and then the region below the corona called the chromosphere, and how the magnetic field plasma interactions at these layers actually then eventually lead to the escape of the wind is what we have not completely studied. And as the time progresses in the later phases of the submission, it actually climbs higher into the ecliptic plane. And then we get to see the poles from a very high latitude, which we never had till now. So we get to map the magnetic field and then these outflows at the same time. And we can study the full geometry of the magnetic field. And in the meantime, we will gather more data to study different coronal holes in different regions and uh, understand the statistics of the phenomena that we discovered in the paper. All right. Thank you so much, Pradeep. Thank you, Sarah. It was a great pleasure talking to you. Lakshmi Pradeep Chita is a research group leader at the Max Planck Institute for Solar System Research. You can find a link to the paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. We have our editor, Keith, back now just for one last question. What's going to happen to the solar orbiter when its missions are done and it's decommissioned? Is it going to get thrown into the sun or is it going to leave the solar system? I think they just leave it on its orbit. Okay, because I know like with some of the planetary ones, they like purposefully destroy it. Right. So does it contaminate? Yes, they do that to avoid contaminating potentially habitable moons. Yeah. But there's nothing near solar orbiter. Actually, this idea of crashing it into the sun, it would actually be extremely difficult. You'd need a lot of fuel to do that. What? So it would have to go much closer? Well, yes, but also the closer you get to the sun, the stronger the gravitational field. So the more fuel you need to change your orbit by a certain amount. Okay, it's just blowing my mind. <laughs> what? Right, it's actually extremely difficult. But if you to... just turn it off, doesn't it eventually just death spiral in? No, perhaps on a hundred million year time scale, but no, it won't. It's actually extremely difficult to send spacecraft to Mercury for this exact reason. Oh. It's much easier to go outwards in the solar system than inwards because you just need more fuel. This is blowing my mind, seriously. <laughs> so, yeah, basically that's not going to happen. I, is this going to just be space junk? There might be a plan to put it on a parking orbit, but yeah, it will basically just be space junk. And there's nothing else there. Yeah, we did toss something into the sun at one point, right? We have put... No. A space... Never? Nope. 
Not that I'm aware of. There have been comets that have we've seen hit the sun. Yeah. But those are things that were coming in and then had their orbits perturbed by Jupiter or, or whatever. There's no spacecraft that's ever hit the sun. Now, you might be thinking of Parker Solar Probe, which... That is what I'm thinking of. ...is on a very tight orbit and goes through part of the corona. Mm-hmm. But the corona's huge, right? It's many, many times bigger than the sun. Yeah. It gets very close to the sun, closer than any previous spacecraft, but it, it doesn't actually hit the surface. I think. Well, their press release said something like touching the sun, but it's not, it's not really. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to have to explore this much more in detail, like in a later, next time we have the solar probe on, I will yeah, okay. just, we'll, st- we'll do some research and we'll talk about That was Keith Smith. He's an editor for Science. Thanks again for talking with me about this paper and thanks to Pradeep. Up next, a couple stories on unusual research interruptions from salt to cyber criminals. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Change your job and you might just change the world. For anyone who's looking to get ahead in or just plain get into science, there is no better, more trusted resource than Science Careers. And it's free. On our site, you can search career opportunities across all disciplines and levels, research potential employers, sign up to get job alerts via email, Upload your resume or CV to the searchable database or read career advice articles. There's no shortage of global problems today that science can't solve. Be part of the solution. Visit sciencecareers.org today. This past week, we had two news stories on some very unusual interruptions to the scientific enterprise. Uh, we have a pair of news interns, Tanvi Dadagupta and Selena Zhao. They reported together a story about a cyber attack on a telescope facility. And for our second story, which I could not just pass up because it's another reason that research has halted for unusual reasons, it's about how salty water after a multi-year drought in Uruguay has brought lab science to a halt. And that's by freelance writer Maria Orfila. First, I spoke with our news interns, Tanvi and Selena, on their very last day at science. Welcome, Selena and Tanvi. Thank you for having us. This is a really interesting story and kind of a great way to top off your time here at science. The cyber attack that we're going to talk about is on a ground-based telescope facility. This is called NSF Noir, which doesn't just house an observatory, but it actually is an important coordination point for many observatories. So Selena, how did you first hear about this story? To be honest, no one had actually really heard of it at first because it wasn't widely reported in media outlets beyond just some local ones or ones that specifically focused on cyber attacks. Because understandably, say, if a company or a hospital were to face a cyber attack, a lot of the times personal private data is compromised. But this cyber attack focused instead on an astronomical observatory. So what's really at risk is just researchers' projects. So in terms of like wider public attention, I think this one probably got a little less. So the main people who are actually really following this issue are people in the astrophysics community. So Dan Clary, one of our reporters at Science, first pointed me towards this story. So I'm going to ask Tanvi this one. What do we know, if anything, about how the attack happened, you know, the sequence of events that transpired? On the 1st of August, like the beginning of this month, NSF Noir Lab released a press release basically saying that they detected a cyber incident in their computer systems. And because of that, they were suspending astronomical observations at the Gemini North telescope up on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And they also said that out of an abundance of caution, they're isolating all of the Gemini observatory computer systems, which means that both the Gemini telescopes basically would be offline. One of them was already unavailable for a maintenance shutdown, but that meant the Gemini websites were also offline. And then later on the 9th of August, they shut down more telescopes and like changed operations basically at a couple more. Mm -hmm. The place that the attack occurred, it was this kind of coordinating center, right, Selena? Yeah, that's my understanding, too. So I think the cyber incident was focused on the computer systems of NOR labs, and specifically, it was targeted at Gemini North. 
So there might have been a threat to the physical operations of Gemini North, but thankfully they were able to shut it down before any damage was done, the press release said. Wow. How long has this been going on? Since the beginning of the month, it seems. And they basically expanded their shutdown efforts or their closure efforts on the 9th of August. And it's not just in Hawaii anymore. No, it's basically in Hawaii and in also in Chile. Yeah, just to add on to what Tommy just said, I think we counted around 10 telescopes have had their operations completely shut down and on-site observations can only be done at a few others. So at all these places, researchers can no longer do remote observations. That's a huge problem for for people who want to look at the sky. Telescope time is such an important element to getting data and doing their research. What has the impact been like on the different scientists involved? So every lost night means an opportunity to collect data on that specific part of the night sky that's only visible on that night is also lost. And especially for astronomers that are tracking maybe like one planet or, you know, maybe a galaxy that only is really visible from Earth a couple of times every year. One scientist we talked to was like, for example, he said he had seven observation windows to use. Um, and, you know, as soon as he loses those seven, he can no longer collect that data he wanted. So these shutdowns are impactful because it's not like the kind of thing you can be like, oh, I'll come back, you know, in two weeks and do it. Because often the opportunity is, you know, you need to be ready at from 1.10 a.m. to 5 a.m. on the 15th of August in order to make this observation. So it's extraordinarily specific. And so any losses or any disruptions can be extraordinarily impactful. Telescopes are kind of isolated to these parts of the world that are high up and they have low exposure to light pollution. But the scientists have been able to be very highly distributed. There are places all over that you can log on and get your telescope time set up. Is there any way that these distributed scientists can kind of get over this hurdle? How can they access these remote telescopes without the computer systems? This was actually interesting. We didn't get a chance to talk about this that much in the article, but one of the scientists was taking me through this idea of remote access. So basically, traditionally, you have to be standing at the telescope, looking through the lens and being like, wow, I see that planet. But especially during COVID, I think this accelerated this idea of remote access. This meant you could log on to a website and basically schedule the observations be like, hey, telescope, I'm sitting in Arizona, but you're in Chile. And in Chile, could you please point at, you know, 150 degrees in this direction and up in this direction and take five pictures of this planet. And because of that, they basically this remote access was really revolutionary for a lot of astronomers. Um, the source was telling me because they could do these observations and schedule these options without needing to book a very expensive flight to Chile and spend several sleepless nights on top of a mountain. Instead, they could sit in Arizona, schedule the observations from a portal on their computer, wake up the next morning and have all of that already ready. So this was really, really transformational in terms of the amount of data that could be generated, the amount of science that could be done and sort of the scale and the breadth of science that could be done. But it does need internet access, which comes with cybersecurity vulnerabilities, as they found out. So now are we back at the point where people need to be flying to Hawaii or Chile to get the readings that they need? So right now what's happening is some on-site staff from Norlabs are taking charge. They're working around the clock looking at the telescopes themselves to try to minimize the lost data. But I mean, as you imagine, that's a really tough job because there's so many projects lined up and you have to stay up all night to make these observations happen. So for those staff, time is running short. It's a lot of work. Yeah, it's not sustainable, right? Exactly. So an, an alternative some researchers are looking into is actually sending their own grad students or postdocs who are trained in using these facilities to Chile or to wherever the telescopes are, being on those mountains themselves and looking at those observations in person. But as you can imagine, that's logistically pretty challenging. Like you have to find out where to stay. And not everybody has the funds either, I'm sure, to just add flights onto their budget. Exactly. And I think Nora Labs has been like very supportive. I think they're like offering free accommodation and stuff like that. But also fundamentally, you're asking someone who thought they were going to spend the semester up at home and, you know, here in Texas, <laughs> here in Texas. And they're, they're like, actually, I'm going to be on top of a mountain in Chile for a month. So getting into the attack here, do we know anything about the attackers or their goals? Are they ransoming something, control of the telescopes, anything like that? 
So it's pretty much all under wraps, as far as we know. Even employees have gotten very little information because of the ongoing investigation. So at first, Tom V and I actually tried emailing a bunch of people. I think we hit probably around 80 emails of various employees and researchers who are involved. And our response rate was probably around 5% because just no one knows anything. And for ransomware, we asked the press team and we did not receive a response for that. They declined to answer. Do we know anything about if anything's being done or what kinds of things are being done to get everything switched back on? Honestly, information also scarce there. A lot of the press team has assured us that people are working around the clock, but a lot of scientists have also said that like it's understandable in these information security scenarios that they're not going to share a lot of information publicly because they don't want to give an advantage to the attackers and they don't want to alert someone. And so I think one guy was like, yeah, just sort of a need to know basis. And I assume that if they're not telling us, I don't need to know. It seems that their IT team is working and it seems that they're trying as much as possible to maintain normal observations, like by offering places for in-person observations and stuff like that. But what exactly that means is sort of a mystery to the general public. That makes sense. Is this something that's that's happened before, an attack on an observatory or a telescope? ALMA was another radio telescope in Chile that also went dark for nearly two months last year. That was a massive meltdown for the community because two months, if you think about it, is a huge amount of time for you to not have access to the amount of data you need. Mm -hmm. And I don't think we ever, the public never learned what exactly went on. We just know there was a cyber attack. But even after systems went back online, it remained a mystery. Yeah, sounds like that's what's going to happen here too. Is there some effort though to kind of secure things for the future. A lot of the astronomers we talked to were talking about how this is making them rethink the vulnerability of their work because I think as someone very eloquently put it, why would anyone bother to attack an observatory? There is no specific data that's advantageous to honestly anyone but an astronomer working on that PhD thesis. It takes ages and ages to even process it. And so most people assume this, you know, wouldn't be something to worry about. But it is kind of clear that especially as attackers are spreading out their efforts, are just sort of targeting any kind of system, are, you know, using any kind of password, these places can be vulnerable. And so I think a lot of astronomers might use this incident to kind of rethink how they're managing their identity and access system. Some people might push for like a more centralized identity access metric and just get people to be more cautious that, you know, this is a risk that you might not have thought about before because it seems not super advantageous for anyone. But in this hyper-connected world, there are also risks of hyper-unconnectivity with, with these attacks. Yeah, we all fall apart when our internet falls apart, right? Yeah. If you think about it, the nature of research is very collaborative. And these observatories, their international collaborations between several countries and researchers are, of course, scattered across the globe. So for banks or other private institutions, their solution is just to block themselves off. If you build a wall around everything, I mean, that's a very effective way to prevent cyber attackers. But these observatories can't do that because that breaks the flow of research and collaboration. It's a very unique challenge here. All right. Thank you so much, Tanvi. Thank you so much, Selena. Yeah, thanks. Had fun. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it, sir. Yeah, I'm glad you guys could come on before you finish your internship. Tanvi Dadagupta is a Diverse Voices in Science Journalism intern at Science. She studies ecology and science communication at Stanford University. Selena Zhao is a Diverse Voices in Science Journalism intern at Science. She studies science writing and biology at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Before we wrap up, I also wanted to include this other story that we ran this week on unusual stoppages to science, and this is uh, written by Maria Orfila. She's a freelance science writer based in Uruguay. Her story is on an unusual problem for researchers and actually the whole country of Uruguay. After several years of La Nina and drought in the country, they ran very, very low on fresh water and ended up having to make do with saltier water. And this is going to everybody's taps and showers. It's for the businesses. It's for the labs. So I talked to Maria about what it's been like. I live in Montevideo, which is the capital city of Uruguay. 
Uh, the underlying problem we are facing are three consecutive very dry years due to the La Nina phenomenon. La Nina leads to below average rainfall, and this scenario has affected Uruguay, Argentina, Brazil, and Paraguay. The lack of rain has meant that the freshwater reserves of the main source for the metropolitan area has almost been depleted this year. This affects, uh, affects nearly 2 million people's lives. This is a multi-year process of the La Nina running low on fresh water, draining the reserves. How long have things been too salty or Basically, you haven't been able to really rely on fresh water for the past how long? Last April or May. Mm -hmm. What is the state doing to supply people with water? When the freshwater reserves in an area known as Paso Severino, Paso Severino Dam, uh, were nearly depleted, the government made the decision to blend it with water from the Rio de la Plata, which has a brackish water. In order to maintain the potability of the water, they had to elevate the level of sodium and chloridize. So when they added this brackish water, it increased the saltiness of the water going to everybody's house past what the World Health Organization recommends. This is excessively salty water, and it's basically not drinkable. How is this affecting the people that live there? We'll talk about researchers in a little bit, but let's talk about humans first. Um, so how are people coping with this? The easy solution was to buy bottled water, not only for drinking, but also for cooking. For Some people have even used it in the shower. Are there any health concerns associated with drinking this water that has such high levels of ions in it? There were recommendations so that the salt water was not consumed. For example, by pregnant women or by people with hypertension. Uruguay has a, a high level of people with hypertension. Uh, some doctor even recommended uh, not shower with tap water to avoid skin problems. And vets, for, uh, for example, recommended not giving pets the water to drink. And my, my dog is drinking bottled water since May. So let's turn to the, you know, the more the main focus of your story, which is the surprising effects that this has had on science and scientists in your country. You know, one of the things you write about in your story is that someone who's working in plant biotechnology, the vegetable cultures that she's trying to keep alive in her laboratory, they just like faded away and died. You know, what who else is seeing problems? You know, what else have you seen? Another case is Fabio Solesi who has seen growth and survival problems in the fish uh, larva and embryos she study, And the big common problem for different laboratories uh, was the breakage of their water purification device. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so they have to replace their equipment or replace parts of it in order to be able to continue on their work? Yes, yes. And they must to buy some equipment, some device, but they must wait four or five months for their purchase. As you said, it took about three years for it to come to this point. Was this something that some researchers were braced for? Yes and no. Experts have long warned of the situation. What was unexpected was the their result. No Uruguayan believed that they could lack drinking water until this year. In the case of, of scientists, for example, they could not foresee the, the impact that he could have. It was a an, very unusual and, and historical situation for us. Yeah. Is there a long-term plan, you know, once things come back online to prevent this from happening in the future, at least to the labs? We can get to fixing nature a little bit later. In the long term, million-dollar works must be carried out to ensure that the situation will not happen again. To achieve a, a short-term result, an express connection was established between the Santa Lucia River, the, the primary source of potable water, and the San Jose River, thus uh, avoiding further extraction of blackish water from the Rio de la Plata. This project was started just a few days ago this, this week. In a long-term plan is a find alternative freshwater sources because 2 million people depends one source, uh, Santa Lucia River and Paso Severino Dam. Thank you so much for coming on, Maria. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
Maria Orfila is a science journalist based in Uruguay. You can find a link to all the stories we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for the fourth episode in our six-part series of books exploring the science of sex and gender. Host Angela Saini talks with political scientist Paisley Carra about why and how government institutions categorize people by sex and gender. Hi there, I'm Angela Saini, science journalist, author, and the host of this special series of books, podcasts. In a series of six interviews which have been released monthly, I've been speaking to the authors of thought-provoking books on different facets of sex and gender. We've reached the fourth edition, and this time I'm joined by Paisley Curra, Professor of Political Science and Women's and Gender Studies at Brooklyn College and the Graduate Centre of the City University of New York. Curra has written widely on transgender issues and is also the co-founder of the journal TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly. We're going to discuss his 2022 book, Sex is as Sex Does, Governing Transgender Identity, which explores how governments and their agencies decide to classify people as male or female. Now, this might feel like a straightforward question for most people, but of course it isn't for everyone. So first of all, Paisley, can you explain the experiences, both personal and professional, that brought you to this topic? I was have been doing transgender rights advocacy as an advocate and also as a scholar and a researcher for some time. I had been primarily interested in discrimination and the, the lack of non-discrimination laws. And then when I transitioned and I started to get my own identity documents in a row and try to change my sex classification from my assigned sex at birth, which was female to male, I realized how complicated the process was. But it wasn't just a matter of administrative complications. It was a matter of like, you couldn't necessarily change your legal sex in every circumstance. So a lot of people outside trans communities think there's this thing like you have a legal sex. But for trans people, we actually have different sex classifications depending on the agency we're working with. Because they have different rules for if you can change your sex classification and then how to change it. And some have more obstacles and some have less obstacles. So I think when I experienced it personally, I I realized it was a problem for transgender people, but also an important problem to untangle for scholarship. Yeah, absolutely. And this was a fascinating thing for me is just to understand that different agencies can see you very differently depending on their remits. There are some heated debates happening in parts of the world right now about what sex and gender are, in other words, how to define them and the distinctions between those two terms. But that's not really the focus of your work. As you say, you're more interested in what gender or sex classification does, so how it's used as an instrument by various government agencies. What do you mean by that exactly? That realization came to me when I was on a committee that New York City put together to kind of rethink its birth certificate policy. And myself and the other advocates and kept talking about, well, this is what sex really is. This is how it ought to be thought. And it's like, it's a kind of a component of gender. And we were making these kind of ideal arguments about the definitions of sex. And eventually it occurred to me for the bureaucrats, they didn't really care about this ideal platonic what sex really is arguments. They cared about how any particular definition of sex would change the work of a particular agency. And when we proposed a definition of sex based on gender identity, this is back in the early 2000s, they shopped it around to different agencies and different agencies had different responses. And they were like, oh, I don't think we're going to, we're not going to change it because every agency has its own approach to sex definition. And that's when I really realized that sex was like a tool of government, not so much an input, but as an output. And can you give some examples of how different agencies would look at sex classification? Yeah. So, you know, for example, in New York City, they will house people in homeless shelters based on one's gender identity. But a lot of the correctional institutions in the city and the state, you know, it, it changes a little bit, but they'll often go by the sexual assigned of birth or whether one's had an, uh, a surgery. Another big distinction is I noticed when I was doing research for the book was Department of Motor Vehicle Policies. DMVs in the United States were always the first to change the rules to let people change their sex, and then also the first to drop a lot of onerous requirements, like requiring surgery, which blocks out a lot of transgender people. And I was interested in that. I thought, it's weird. Maybe these DMV people are just really not transphobic. Maybe they're really progressive. And then I noticed that at the same time, though, when there was still a ban on same-sex marriage, 
all these judicial opinions that were deciding on the leg legitimacy of marriages involving a transgender person were saying these people actually are going to be classified according to their sex assigned at birth for the purposes of marriage. And that's a really good example of like driver's licenses and identity documents serve a different state purpose than marriage at that time, which was all about still, you know, students and people think of marriage as about romance and marriage, but it's really a legal instrument for the transmission of property. And trans people in marriages were sort of messing up some of the fictions about marriage. But when it comes to um, identity documents, it's actually in the interest of the state for people to carry around identity documents to reflect who they are. So people can't see me, but I'm like, you know, <laughs> a balding, bearded man. It's not really useful for a police officer or for the state when I get pulled over for a, a speeding ticket to hand over a driver's license F on it. It's actually in terms of surveilling people and tracking people. It's in the interest of the state for me to have an M on my driver's license. So while I used to kind of look at policies as to whether or not they were transphobic or not transphobic, I eventually understood that some of the thinking behind these policies weren't really about transphobia, but actually about larger state interests. Right. And you do use the phrase sex classification throughout the book rather than gender classification. How do you see that distinction then? Right. I decided that like I wasn't going to have a definition of sex myself, like this is the actual definition of sex. I decided that for the purposes of the book, or the thought experiment that is the, that is the book, that I would define sex as only the result of a government decision. So sex is just what the government says it is for the purposes of the book. And then gender means so much else. It means all these like larger historical stories and narratives and gender identities that I didn't really spend much time looking at in the book. I was really just looking at sex classification. And by using the word sex, I wasn't meant meaning to signal that, oh, sex is biological and gender is social, just that sex is an effect of government decisions. You write in one part of your book that part of the state's function is to arrange difference. That's the words that you use. And that really struck me because that's often also what scientists are trying to do when they study the world. We're arranging difference, organizing the world. Can you explain why this act of arranging difference is so fraught? Because with the arrangements of difference comes the distribution of goods. So who gets to pass on property? Who gets to own property? who gets to be recognized as a full citizen and who, who doesn't. So these distinctions, sometimes they're not particularly meaningful. Like a distinction is like, we're going to classify anybody who drives over 70 miles an hour as a speeder and people who drive 50 as a not speeder. Like that's not quite so controversial. But when it comes to earlier areas of racial classification or contemporary moments around gender class, sex classification, then that difference actually has effects, has real effects on people's lives. And as we get legislation that institutes equality between different groups, but we retain the classification, then what does that classification really mean at a governmental level? Right. Well, now we're in this interesting moment where like the government doesn't use sex all that much to make sure men get more stuff than women. In the United States, actually, one of the few places where sex really matters is when people have to register for selective service, which is the draft. And then it's, it's, it's done according to people assigned assigned male at birth. But in most places, it doesn't matter. So but it's still kind of a it still matters culturally, like we could stop governments from assigning sex on people's birth certificates, because we don't have a ban on same sex marriage, like we don't really need to track people's sex the way we used to. But culturally, it still carries so much weight. And many people would be a little disconcerted to bring a baby home from the hospital and a couple of weeks later, get a birth certificate that didn't have any, any sex marker on it. So it still really matters that way. You also write that it was as late as 1965 before the New York City Commissioner for Health felt the need to consult medical experts on the question of reclassification on birth certificates. Why was that? And what can that tell us about how important or unimportant the science of sex or gender actually is in how we navigate this in social and political terms? Right. That was a really fascinating discussion because I went and I reviewed the minutes about this ad hoc committee of, uh, they were almost all doctors, but they spent most of their time talking about the legal implications of changing people's sex. So they had a couple of times discussions about chromosomes or hormone levels, but most of the time they were talking about the legal implications of changing people's sex. So as people who look into this question understand, like sex can be defined in different ways and every different way is going to produce a different result. You could define it according to chromosomes. You could define it according to genitals visible at birth, according to reproductive capacity, according to hormone levels. And every definition is going to produce a slightly different population of people labeled men and women. So what I argue in the book is that 
for many, many times, the definition is sort of reversed engineered to produce particular results. And we can see this looking at some of the battles over women athletes. You're speaking about athletes like Casta Semenya. Yes, exactly. Who is defined as intersex and does really complicate the way, the binary ways in which we organize the world and organize society. Yes, exactly. Like people assume there's there's this kind of natural existing binary, but for people who look into questions of the science of sex classification, there's any number of criteria that one could set as the fundamental criteria that produces different results. We often, you know, treat this issue of sex and gender classification as problematic only for those who are transgender or intersex. But as you argue, this is actually a matter for everyone because how you were classified by the state, as you've already mentioned, for much of history, would have also shaped how you live. So, you know, for me to be classified as a woman in the 1970s or 1960s would have meant a denial of certain rights in marriage, certain freedoms. Even earlier than that would have even denied me the vote. Why do you think then it's important for us to see this issue of categorization and classification as a broader issue for everyone? Yes, I think it's so important because when transgender people first, when we first started trying to change our sex classification, we ran up against this huge system of sex classification that was built to make sure that men got more stuff than women and primarily organized also in terms of property around race. White men got more stuff than than white women. And then transgender people are this residual category that wasn't imagined when the classification system was built. And so, in fact, a lot of the gains of transgender rights actually have been the result of liberal feminism eradicating the ability of the state to distinguish between men and women. So we kind of really owe a debt to the what I would call the disestablishment or the decommissioning of, of sex in the government, because it was used to make sure that, that women had less life opportunities than men did. And so just going back to what we were discussing earlier, the logical consequence of that is, is if we do have legal equality between groups, if eventually we reach a state in which socially or politically your sex classification doesn't matter, what is the purpose then in still collecting that, you know, having those boxes on those forms? Scientists might want to have that kind of information. And there's people like Sarah Richardson works out of the Harvard Sex Gender Lab, talk about like, we need to understand sex as a variable that changes, and we need to understand it as contextual. So what are we asking for? Why does it matter? And that will change the definition of sex that you use. So for example, we don't necessarily need to give everybody a birth certificate with a sex marker on it, but it might make sense for epidemiological reasons for officials to keep track of the, the number of people assigned male at birth and the number of people assigned female at birth. So that's there's still relevant policy reasons to, to kind of think about sex in a contextual, sophisticated way. But the other thing that's happening now, though, is that sex and sex difference has become featured in the culture wars. So before, a lot of bureaucrats and judges would kind of weigh in on sex classification and transgender people would pay attention, but no one really paid much attention outside trans communities. Now it's been weaponized and legislators are like coming up with sex classification policies that make no sense scientifically or policy-wise, but they're still passing these laws that would say sex is going to be determined at birth by chromosomes and genitals. Well, they don't have an answer for what happens if those things are in conflict, for example. So now it's been, it doesn't really matter in terms of the distribution of resources, but it does matter culturally. And that's something that the transgender rights movement has to kind of figure out how to address and our allies. Yeah, absolutely. And how are you navigating the fact that this issue that you write about and you've written about for so long has suddenly been thrust into these culture wars? It's very frightening in the sense that things have moved so fast. Like in the United States, there were like 16 anti-trans bills seven or eight years ago. And this year there were almost 500 anti-trans bills. And I also think that we are well prepared with medical evidence and all these statements of support from different medical associations. So the level of thoughtful policy, that's good. But at the level of like just politics and telling stories and representing the realities of transgender lives to people, we haven't really geared up the way the right wing has. We don't really have the same kind of instruments or the same kind of messaging that they do. And we need to, to figure out how to tell the stories of transgender people's lives better. Yeah, absolutely. And just finally, then, if the categories we have right now are inadequate or don't fit the world very well, what would be the alternative? Just taking the long view here. Are there any countries or jurisdictions somewhere that approach this question of classification differently or are actively rethinking traditional classification systems? 
Well, I think countries that make it easier for people to identify as non-binary, they kind of signal the future of sex classification. It's still kind of like your M or your F or your non-binary. And that's a, definitely a step forward. In the United States, we have a bunch of jurisdictions that, that allow that on driver's licenses. And the Biden administration just changed that on passports. But eventually, I think we can get to a place where we don't need to have a marker on one's identity document because those are still three categories that are very blunt and they don't really they don't really speak to how individuals live their lives in a much more complex way. And can you imagine what that alternative might look like? I see it as moving towards a world of kind of gender pluralism, where it's not just one gender or two, not just two genders or, or two genders on non-binary, but like so many different ways of like living your gender in a very fluid and mobile way. And I think that's just, that's something that's not just of interest to transgender people, but this category of cisgender people, because a lot of cisgender people also have much more interesting and complex relations to gender than just the simple messaging of the gender binary. Absolutely. Paisley Kara, thank you so much. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening. I'm Angela Saini, and I hope you'll tune in for the next interview in our series. I'll be speaking that month to Kristin Godsey, the author of Everyday Utopia. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.